you've got a Bible, we're in Romans chapter 7. That's Romans chapter 7. We are finishing up a series today uh, in the book of Romans called Finding Freedom. Uh, we have been in chapters 6 and 7, and today we're going to cover chapter 7, verses 1 through 25, really focusing on the second half of Romans chapter 7 as we wrap up this series. We've, we've been looking over in Romans 6, uh, we looked at for a couple of weeks, at how believers are free from sin. And how we've been set free from sin and set free to obey God because of our union with Christ. And so everything's different once we place our faith in Jesus. It's like when Christ died, we died. When Christ lives, now we live. And so we are so united with Christ in his death and resurrection that everything's changed. And so we're set free from sin. But we saw last week, we're not just free to not sin. We're free to obey God. And we have a new master. And that master is God. But this does not come without a fight. It does not come without frustration. There is an inner conflict that wages in the life of every believer, a war that's taking place. And the truth is, sometimes we don't live like we wish we'd live. We don't make choices that we'd wish we'd make. And there's this turmoil, this turmoil, this, this friction, there's this tension that we live in, even as believers in Christ. I was thinking, uh, this week about the old story, the little boy that's standing, on, uh, standing up at the kitchen table, standing in his kitchen chair, and his mama looks at him and she says, sit down. And he says, no. She said, I said sit down. He says, no. And she says, one. He says, no. He says, two. He says, no. She says, three. And he sits down, right? Because it's, all, it's the magic number. And so he sits down and she says, now that's more like it. And he says, Mama, I'm sitting down on the, in, on the, in, on the outside, but I'm what? I'm standing up on the inside. And uh, that's the way I feel like with my kids sometimes, the way it goes. But, but that's the inner conflict that we all have is sometimes what's on the inside and what's happening on the outside. Sometimes they don't line up. There's like this turmoil that we face and every Christian faces it. And sometimes what we're doing on the outside doesn't line up with what we wish we would have done on the inside because our desires sometimes are competing and are at war. And that's why you sin. Whether you've been saved for five minutes or for 50 years, you still sin because of this conflict, because of this war, this tension that's in the Christian life that we deeply desire to obey God. We deeply desire to make godly choices. We deeply desire to not sin. Yet at the same time we sin and we make ungodly choices and we disobey God. And we live because we live in a war zone. And part of that war zone is that we live in a fallen world. But part of that war zone is that God's not done with you, whether you've been saved for five minutes or 50 years. If you're breathing, he's not done with you. He's still working in your life to make you more like Jesus. We are not yet who we will be. And in this life, you will not become fully who you will be in eternity in the sense of literally sinless Saved from not just the power of sin, not just the penalty of sin, but ultimately from the very presence of sin in your life. And in Romans chapter 7, I believe we get an honest look at the Apostle Paul's battle with sin as a believer in Jesus. Paul loves God's law, he's going to tell us. He, he wants to obey God, but he doesn't do so perfectly. The law of God is sort of the centerpiece of the chapter that we're about to read, the, the common theme that runs from verse 1 through 25. And Paul shows us in this chapter his war both before and after conversion, his relationship with the law before he was a believer, and his relationship with the law after becoming a believer. So look with me at Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 1. We're going to work our way section by section. Paul writes, 
Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Verse 3, accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So let me pause and kind of just summarize what Paul's saying here. Paul, he's giving an analogy. He's opening the chapter with, a, with an illustration. He says the law is not binding on dead people is his point. The law is binding on the living. And he's using marriage as an illustration. He says if you, if you go and dump your spouse and go and marry someone else, you'll be considered an adulterer. And, and God's law would, have considered, would consider you an, an adulterer. But he says, but if you remarry after your spouse is dead, no one considers that an adultery. Because even your vows say what? To death do you part. And, and so it, it ends, the marriage relationship does, you're at death. So you're free to marry. And so he's using that as an illustration of a bigger picture. Look at verse 4. He says, likewise, my brothers... You also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. So in Christ, right, we're dead to sin, alive to God. We're also, well, we're also dead to the law. We aren't married to the law. We're now united to Christ. Verse 5, he says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died, so that that which held us captive, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So living in the flesh here, as he calls it, refers to life before Christ. Is what he's talking about there. He's talking about the, the life he had pre-conversion, the life you had pre-conversion. This is when you're totally dominated by sin. You're, you're a slave to sin, as he says in Romans chapter 6. Sinful passions are bearing fruit for death in your life, he says, just like he said in chapter 6. And now, released from the law, no longer held captive by it, no longer condemned by it, we now serve in a new way. He says the way of the Spirit, he's referring to the Holy Spirit. We've now been given the Holy Spirit, and we're empowered to walk with God in the power of the Spirit. So this whole first section, all the way down here through verse 6, this whole first section is pointing to the fact that the, for, for people to be free from the law and the condemnation it brings for, and for, for our disobedience to the law, a death had to occur. Okay? And that death happened in Christ. And when we placed our faith in Christ, we died with Christ and we raised to walk in newness of life. And that newness of life is meant to be lived in the power of the Holy Spirit who is present in our life. So our uniting with him through faith not only makes us free from sin but also the law. So next Paul is going to reveal some things about the purpose of the law and his relationship with it before he was a Christian. Look at verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. So Paul here, he's championing the law, right? It's good. It's holy. And, and he shows us what the law does. He says, first of all, he points out the law reveals sin. Paul says, if it's not for the law, he wouldn't have known sin. The law brought specif specificity to sin, okay? That Paul knew coveting was a sin because of the command, you shall not covet. 
right? The, the 10th commandment. So the law tells us what, the, what sin is. It reveals right and wrong. So we see that in the 10 commandments, right? You, you, could, you could also say, didn't know what adultery was, or I didn't know what lying was, or I didn't know what, until the law said it. It made, brought it, made it very specific. So the law, in a sense, can kind of work like a dictionary, right? It can kind of, kind of define sin for us. It can show this is sin. And the law, but also, Paul points out here, it, it, sin is provoked by the law. Paul even said in the verses prior, up in verse 6, that his sinful passions were aroused by the law. In this section, he says sin seized an opportunity through the commandment and that he should not covet and that it produced all kinds of coveting. But his point is, the problem is not the law. It's not the command. The command is holy, he says. The problem is the person hearing the command. We hear something we shouldn't do, and our human nature says, well, watch me, I will do it. And so we hear, we see a rule, and what we see is an opportunity to exert our own authority over the rule. It's like, you know, I've got three small kids, and, um, and you know, my six-year-old, right to bed, no problem, nine times out of ten. But my four-year-old is a hostage negotiation every bedtime. So we get her off the bed, and we do the things you do, right? We pray with her. She says her prayer, whatever. If she wants a song, we sing a song, whatever. Tuck her in. And then some nights it might be three times, but sometimes it might be ten times or twelve times that she'll repeatedly get up. And there's a various, sometimes she wants a hug, sometimes she wants a kiss. But really what she wants to do is not do what you've told her to do. And it becomes like a game to her, right? So I'll, I'll walk through the house, and I'll see her peeking around through the hall, whispering at her mom, you know, don't, because I've told her to go to bed, right? So she doesn't want, well, oh, I'm not supposed to be in bed. It's like a little game for her. She's like, it's like she's a spy or something like that. And what it is, is it's human nature. The whole point, the reason she doesn't want to be in bed is because, the very fact is because I've told her to go to bed. And that's the way we're wired. That's our, that's our sin nature even. We, we know we're not supposed to do that. And there's something about that that kind of makes us go, ah, might try that. That, that, that's the human sin nature. Paul says, see, I was once alive apart from the law, verse 9. But when the, law, when, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through that which is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So what does Paul mean that he was once alive apart from the law? Well, I think what Paul is saying here is he's, he's speaking of his, and man, this is literally uh, one of the most debated passages in all the New Testament and probably the most difficult passage in all the New Testament um, to interpret in some ways. So people have all these different interpretations of it. But I believe what Paul is saying here is, is his personal experience before Christ. Before he really understood the law and what it was demanding, he thought he was fine. Right? He thought he was spiritually alive and things were good. He wasn't, but he thought he was. And the law promised life. And Paul thought, well, I'm, I'm obeying the law, so therefore I have life. But but then when he realized what the law demanded, when it, when it was brought home to him, one, one, one theologian said it that way, the law came home to Paul, and when he really realized what it was demanding, he realized, oh, I'm not reaping life from doing the law, I'm reaping death because I haven't kept it perfectly. He says, sin come alive and I died because I couldn't keep the law, and we can't keep the law, no one can perfectly keep it. So we reap death. 
And Paul says the problem here is not the law. It's good. It's holy. As one commentator called it, the law is an unwilling instrument in the hand of sin. Sin brought death. Sin deceived. It's sin that killed, he says. But he tells us another thing here that the law does. The law also is used by God to reveal the wickedness of sin. He says, through the commandment might become, the, the commandment might become sinful, be, that sin, through the commandment, might become sinful beyond measure. See, sin is not just a mistake. And it's not just a bad habit, right? No, 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 he, said, he says it's, it's sinful beyond measure. Why? Because it's, the law shows us that it's actually rebellion against God. God has said, and we have decided, I will not do. And it shows just how sinful sin is because we're not, we don't just have mistakes. We don't just have hang-ups. We don't just have bad habits. The Bible says we're, we're rebels, right? We rebel against God. So the law shows just how wicked sin is. Sin is sinful beyond measure, as Paul says, because it's against the will of God who is immeasurably holy, immeasurably good immeasurably just. So if we sin against him, it has to be sinful beyond measure. And the law shows us that because the law is from God and is good and is holy. And what we're seeing here is Paul is saying, the law showed me how sinful I really was. The problem was not the law I found. The problem was with me because see, the law is like a mirror. It's like a reflector. It just shows you. You go and you look in the mirror in the morning, right? If I don't like what I see, I don't get mad at the mirror. Old stupid mirror making me bald and old. Not the way it works. You laugh too hard at that. <laughs> That's not the way it works. It, and we know that, but, but we, we open God's word and we think the problem, well, the problem must be don't understand my situation. Problem must be, I must not be interpreting this right. Problem, you don't understand the baggage that I come with. You don't understand this. You don't understand. And we try to make, and what we're doing is we're looking at the mirror and we're just nitpicking the mirror instead of dealing with the person that we're staring at. Because that's what God's word does for us. It just reflects back to us. It'll show you who you are. That's how the law works. And that's what Paul's showing us. He found out just how sinful he was when he understood the law and understood what God demands of us. But in Christ, he says, as a believer, we're, we're free from the law. So something happened for Paul when he understood that Jesus had fulfilled the law, right, and the righteous requirements of it. And when he was united with Christ in his death and his resurrection through faith, right, he was given the Holy Spirit so that he might live in obedience to Christ. All this transformation happened. But he inherited this new battle that he talks about starting in verse 14. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. And notice present tense verbs here. I believe Paul is giving us his, his, his personal testimony that we can identify with of his life as a believer, his struggle with sin. He says, I, I am of the flesh sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Verse 19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. I mean, he sounds like Dr. Seuss. 
I mean, it's just like, what, what are you, I mean, it's just like this, like you're on this wheel. Like, what do you mean, Paul? He's not making sense. And, but we know because we've, we've been there, we understand it, we identify with it. Paul says the problem's not the law, it's us, and the law is spiritual, it's good, it's from God. But I'm of the flesh, and you're of the flesh, we're in the flesh, sold under sin. Referring, he's saying, I still have this, this skin on. I still have this fleshly body, and at times I still sin. That strong phrase, sold under sin, that troubles some people when they read that. Well, he just told us we're free from sin. How can we be sold under sin? I think Paul is saying, at times, I don't live out fully, fully who I am. At times, my actions in Christ don't line up with who I am in Christ. At, at times, I don't function practically like who I am positionally. Even though I've been set free from sin, I, I live like, a, like, I'm, like I haven't been. He even says, I don't understand my own actions. Can you relate to that? Have you ever done what you don't want to do? Have you ever done something and think, oh, I hate that. Why did I do that? I hate that attitude. I hate that action. But Paul says, it's not me. It's sin. Now, he's not skirting responsibility there. That's not the point of that. His point is this. The conflict between who he is in Christ and his inability to live perfectly in light of that reality. He's not saying, oh, it's not really me doing it. What he's saying is, man, there's this part of me that really does not want to do that. But I've still got this sin nature. I've still got this flesh. He says, I've got this real war going on inside of me. Deep down, I want to obey God, but sometimes I don't. Sometimes my deepest desire gets trumped by an immediate desire. And you're like, well, Paul sounds conflicted, confused. And yeah, we all are. This is the battle with sin. So in verse 21, he says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So Paul here describes sin as a, a principle, a law. On the inside, he delights in the law of God. That's one of the ways I think we know that he's speaking as a believer here. <laughs> that my inner being, my new man delights in the law of God, but there's another law, another principle at work that remains in us. And, and he says, man, wretched man that I am. That, that word can convey exhaustion, they say. Just exhausted man, wretched man that I am. Just worn out with this battle. And Paul says, the victory, where can I get victory? Where can I be delivered? He says, it comes through Jesus. But notice, it's future. It's future. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Who will deliver me? Not who has. So he, he's speaking of an, a, a time to come here. Because Paul sums up with reminding us in the last verse there that in the present, the battle continues. So as we kind of apply this, I want to mainly focus on the second half of the chapter that we just read. Because I think every single believer in the room needs to know these three truths about this war that is going on inside of you, okay? So the first thing you need to know about the war within you is that the war within is an unavoidable reality for the believer. If you know Jesus this morning, just as it was for Paul, this battle, this turmoil inside is as much a, a reality for you and it's unavoidable as it was for the Apostle Paul. 
If the Apostle Paul never arrived at a sinless state this side of heaven, neither will you and neither will I. And all through the second half of the chapter, Paul was making known a very real struggle. He says in verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh, soul, under sin. Now in verse 21, I find it to be a law, a principle, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. This, this battle, this war. Because see, when you get saved, you don't just go to heaven immediately, Right? And all through the Bible, we've said, we say this a lot, but it's a reminder that we need over and over again that when we talk about salvation and what it means to be a Christian, the Bible does it in three tenses, right? We, we, we were saved, we are being saved, we will be saved. And theologically, we call that justification. We were justified. The moment you place your faith in Christ, you were declared righteous by God, you were justified, right? In God's courtroom, the matter has been settled. And then the middle phase is I'm being saved day by day. That's called sanctification. That's Christian growth. That's becoming more like Jesus. That's, that's the process. That's why you're not perfect yet, right? It's that middle phase. And then the end is glorification. I will ultimately be saved. So one's about the penalty of sin. I've been justified. I've been declared righteous, so I'm saved from sin's penalty. One's about the power of sin. It's been broken in my life, but I'm still wrestling with it day to day. And one's about the very presence of sin being vanquished from my life so that I don't deal with sin anymore. I'm not even tempted to sin anymore. And that doesn't happen to glory, okay? That doesn't happen to heaven. So in the middle here, we've got this, this sanctification process. One preacher said it this way, for the unbeliever, this world is as close to heaven as you'll ever get. But for the believer, this world's as close to hell as you'll ever get. It, this world is a struggle. It is a war zone for the believer. Many of us, we're, we're saved, but we know because we're here, we haven't been glorified. So we're in the process zone. And process isn't easy. Process is hard. Process is painful. Process is a struggle. Um, great theologian George Ladd referred to the time for the Christian that we live in now, uh, between now and when Jesus comes back. He called it the already not yet. People refer to that a lot of times talking about last things, but it's also just true in the Christian life. We, we are saved we, it, already. It's ours. And my future is as certain now as it ever will be. But I haven't yet fully realized it, so I'm in this tension in the middle of where I'm becoming more like Jesus. But that is a messy, painful process. So if you're struggling with sin, that doesn't make you a weird Christian this morning. That makes you normal. That's normative for the believer. Listen, if there's no sin in your life that you're battling, if you haven't had to confess anything this month, man, we, we need to put your picture on the wall and name something after you. I mean, Paul wrote scripture, right? And he's battling sin. You battle sin too. So when you look at your life and you go, man, I just don't feel very godly. I just don't feel very Christian. Do other people struggle like I do? The answer is yes, they do. Most of them just aren't honest because they're liars too. We like to hide it and push it down and, and keep it from people. And, and, and we don't like to talk about it. We don't want to confess it and we don't want to deal with it. But we're all still struggling with sin. But a struggle, that, just that phrase conveys the idea that there is a fight. That there is a war going on. If, you, if we refuse to repent of our sin, if we refuse to deal with our sin, if we'd rather defend our sin and protect our sin at all costs, that's not a war. That's defeat. And you need to be set free by Jesus through faith. But the believer does have a war inside and the struggle is real. There is a, there is a fight going on that we have to battle by the power of the Spirit. 
Paul says, I desire to do the right thing, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. In one sense, I think it refers to his inability to perfectly keep God's law, but but also he's saying, my old man, the old me, my flesh, it, man, it just doesn't have the ability to do what God's asking it to do. I need help. See, godly people are, are, are sin sensitive. Sin sensitive. The more Christ-like you become, the more you will hate sin. The more you will recognize sin. The more conflicted at times that you may actually feel. Uh, the battle doesn't subside because you become godly. You, you become more aware of your shortcomings many times. Uh, the, more, the, the more humble you become, the more aware of your pride you become. The more generous God makes you, the more you're able to spot your greed. You, you become more sensitive because your life is yielded to the Spirit more and more. And as you bear more and more fruit of the Spirit, you recognize the bad fruit more. It stands out more in your life. Because your life is not like some overrun garden full of weeds where you just don't see it anymore. It's been well tended and now you're like, oh, there's a weed. Now, when I was thinking about this this week, I was thinking, how can I illustrate this in real life? And I've got this illustration, and, you know, I hate to, I hate, I hate to use Nick Saban as an illustration. I only get, like, one of those a year around here, and so, or they'll probably, y'all probably fire me. But, because uh, I know you don't want to hear about him and all his national championships and Alabama football and all that kind of, I love to talk about it, you know. I love, you know, I, I read my little Alabama fan devotional every morning, and uh, I'm just kidding. But, but I thought about this quote. It's not a direct quote from him, but he said he remembers the losses more than he remembers the wins. This is a guy that's one I forget, I mean, I don't know, like five national championships or something as a coach, five or six, I don't know, like two different schools. And he's won a bunch of games, right? He says, I remember the losses more than the wins. He said, he said this, I hate losing more than I love winning. And I'll, as an as a Alabama fan, it's a little biased here, Sometimes I watch Alabama play and I watch him win and I see him in an interview and I'm like, why is he so angry, right? You just won, right? And he, he's always, you know, we didn't do this right and we didn't do that right. And you look at that and you go, well, is, is it because he's just a grumpy, bad coach? No, in fact, it's, he's, a, he's a great one, right? He's considered one of the best ever coaching college football. The, the, the point is this, he, being great didn't make him less sensitive to losing and failure. He's more sensitive to losing and failure. And in a similar way, a godly Christian is not less sensitive to sin and failure. You get more sensitive to it. And you recognize it quicker in your life. And you want to deal with it quicker. Because it stands out more. Because your life's not overrun with the weeds of sin. Because you're trying to live in the power of the Spirit. So we're sin sensitive, but we're also, we're also this, this, is also, this battle's also real because, because we're sin sick. We're, we're sick of sin. We don't, we hate it. Paul says, it's the things I'm doing, I, I hate. Right? We're, 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 we're sin sick people. We're, we're, we're sick of it. Have you ever gotten food poisoning from like a restaurant and then realized you could never eat there again? Like you just, you hear somebody just like, you want, and you're like, nope. You know, I got, I got food poisoning there 25 years ago. I can't do it. Right? It's just like in your head, you just associate that with all that grossness. And you just don't, it, your appetite is not the same for that place anymore or that kind of food or whatever. And for believers, when we came to faith in Christ, it was because we realized, right, 
The wages of sin is death. I'm a sinner. And, and, and the Spirit of God began to work in your heart, and you wanted to turn away from that, and you wanted to turn to Jesus. And so your appetite for sin is forever changed when you come to know Jesus. It's not that there's just like no appetite for it. There's, it's just different. You feel differently about it. That's part of the reason we have this struggle, and it's a very real struggle. But the second principle is the war within is due to indwelling sin. The reason there is a war that is very real is that little phrase, indwelling sin. That's what you have that causes you to still sin. In verse 7, Paul explains it very clearly. In verse 17, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that what? Dwells within me. Verse 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And verse 20, now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He meant it so much he said it twice. Verse 23, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He's talking about indwelling sin. And the reason we have Christian conflict is because of this indwelling sin. One preacher called it your, your Adam suit, Right? Dr. John MacArthur refers to it as your unredeemed humanness, whatever you want to call it, your, your flesh, the part of you that still struggles, the part of you that still, listen, while you're in this body, you still get sick, we still grow old, we still hurt, we still experience pain, and we still sin. All those things happen because we're still in this unglorified body, this unredeemed humanness. We're not perfected yet. As Dr. Paul Tripp says, it's always the evil inside of me that connects me to the evil outside of me. <laughs> That's how we get drawn into sin. It's our own desires. The problem is not that God's too demanding. The problem is not that God's word is too strict. The problem is that you and I are sinners. We're justified in Christ, but we're still messed up. Because we're a work in progress, right? We're not a finished work. We're a work in progress. It's like when you drive down the interstate somewhere... You see, pardon our progress. Pardon our progress. I mean, two years of this mess, right? Two hours of traffic and all this kind of stuff. And it's kind of annoying when you see those signs somewhere, right? It's like, pardon our progress. And then you all got to go walk extra few blocks before I can get into this building or whatever. We're walking around or should be with the continual pardon my progress sign around our chest, right? Sorry, I, I lost my temper. Pardon my progress. <laughs> so, sorry for my failure over here. I, I'm sorry I did Pardon my progress, right? Because we're still, we're, God's still working on me. God's still working on you. We're not, we're far from perfect. We're struggling. Paul describes this war within over in the book of Galatians when he wrote the church at Galatia. In Galatians 5, 17, he says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit's desires, are against the flesh, that unredeemed humanness, that party, that, all that. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So there's a, he's, in Galatia, he's describing a war that's going on inside of you. And the Holy Spirit and the desires he wants to produce inside of you and your new and changed and converted heart, man, it's going one way and your sin nature, your flesh, it's going the other way. And so sometimes you don't do what you want to do. Dr. Al Mohler said it this way, the reason we do not do what we want is because sometimes we want to do what's wrong more. <laughs> and it's true. The immediate desire sometimes wins out over the ultimate desire. And it drives us nuts. And as long as you have skin on, 
in this body that will grow old in a body that will get sick, you're going to have a battle with sin. You're going to have warring desires. And that doesn't make you weird. It makes you human. But we're supposed to hate it. Paul says, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. There's a real hatred for it. He doesn't love it. He hates it. And that's the Christian heart. We don't coddle our indwelling sin. We don't cater to it. We don't treat it like a pet. We hate it. We hate, we hate, we hate sin. We hate that we sin. We hate that we want to sin. We, we hate that we give in to these desires. There's a real conflict that goes on. Paul's not looking at his indwelling sin like a buddy. He's talking about it like it's the enemy. It's not a friend. It's a foe. We don't throw up our hands and say, well, I'm not perfect. I'm just forgiven. Hogwash, you're more than just, just forgiven. You're more than just forgiven. You're free. You're in Christ. You're the beloved of God. You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You've been adopted into the family of God. Holy Spirit lives in you, and he cries out, Abba, Father. You're more than just forgiven. All the resources you need to walk in godliness are yours. In Romans 8, Paul's going to get there. We will too. Now, we, we make war on our sin. We don't make nice with the enemy that wants to kill us. So, yes, the reason we have this war within us is because of indwelling sin. But, man, we hate that and we war against that. But the third big principle is this. The war within us ends in certain victory for the believer. If you're in Christ, if, 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 you're, if you're a child of God, that war that rages in you will end in certain victory. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That phrase, body of death, re referring to, to this body, right? Our unglorified bodies that, that still have that indwelling sin. He says, Jesus is the one that's going to deliver me from it. Because my salvation is not just something that happened to me. And it's not just something that's happening to me. It's something that's going to be finalized in me on the last day. There's coming a day when I will be ultimately and finally delivered from this war. You're not going to struggle forever. There will come a day when sin doesn't bring tear to your eyes. For sin will be vanquished and Jesus will have wiped every tear from your eye. There's coming a day when you will no longer make war on sin. One day, all this will seem like a bad dream. One day, you will no longer cry tearful, repentant prayers. Because there will no longer be sin to repent of. And the born-again heart hears that and says, yes. First Corinthians, Paul describes this day. First Corinthians 15, verses 53 through 55. He says, for this perishable body, this, this body, right, the ones we're all in, must, be, must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must, must put on immortality. In other words, the, the body you're in right now, it's not made for forever. It, sin has tainted it. it it's not going to last for forever. So if you're going to go spend eternity with God, you're going to need, a new, need a new body. Verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality. In other words, when we get that glorified body, he says, then, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, oh death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? Where is your sting? Verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. 
But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 53 through 55. That's our certain future he's talking about. That's the day that is to come. A victorious day that we'll have an imperishable body that will not sin. But until then, he says, we're in a battle. And that's why Paul's crying out, who's going to deliver me? Who's going to rescue me? That's what that word means. It means to be rescued from harm. It can even mean to be rescued out of prison. Paul says, man, in this body, I feel like I'm still in prison. I, man, I need to be rescued. I need to be delivered because I don't, I don't want to sin, but I still sin. What do I do? And Paul says, he looks to Jesus. Jesus is going to do that. Because Jesus never stops being our hope. Sin will not have the last word in the life of a believer. Your struggle with greed, with selfishness, with anger and impatience, with lust, with worry, whatever yours is, these things will not have the last word on your life and on your character and on your identity. The thing you hate will not win. Jesus will, and therefore you will win. He has won. His victory is yours. So that's our future. And the thing is, the future and knowing that should be affecting the present. He's going to get all into that in Romans chapter 8. But the future should affect the present because we, we know, man, our future self, man, we're, we're, we're going to be delivered finally from this. And that should begin to shape and inform how we live and how we make war now. I remember, you remember the, um, that movie, um, the, I love, when I was a kid, I loved the Back to the Future movies. And I think it was the second one where they go into the future and, uh, and, and what was the bad guy's name? Biff, I think was his name. And so um, for those of y'all that are, you know, I don't know, under 30, sorry. Um, should go watch these movies. But he slips into the future with them and he gets the sports almanac. And he takes it back to the past and he uses the sports almanac to gamble because he knows all, how, who, who's going to win all the games and all the World Series and Super Bowls. And he becomes like the richest man on earth. Right? He's like become super wealthy. So in the, in the future, he becomes super wealthy and this bad dude and all this kind of stuff. And as a kid, when you'd watch that, you'd think, that's a great idea. I just need a time machine, right? It's something powerful about knowing the future. There is something powerful about knowing the future. They can shape and inform and strengthen you in the present. It, Knowing that we win, knowing that sin's going to be vanquished, strengthens us and gives us the resolve to make war on sin now because we know, man, that is not God's will for my life. That is not God's future for my life. And so it makes us even more resolved to make war on that because, man, that's not me. That's not who I am. So we have to make war on it. Paul says, because until then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my, my flesh, I serve the law of sin, but... But one day, one day, I'll be delivered from that. So what do we do in the meantime? What do we do in the meantime while we await that glorious day? Well, three quick things. Get real, continually turn to Jesus, and continually yield to the Holy Spirit. We have to get honest. We have to get real. Listen, if we don't get honest, if we don't get real, we're going to get whipped. We've got to be real about the fact that we struggle and that we fail. Paul was honest. He's writing to a whole church full of people. It's going to, a letter that's going to be circulated for centuries. We have to open up. We have to stop pretending that we have it all together. 
Listen, Satan loves nothing more than for you to hide your sin and isolate yourself from community. We, we live in, a, in an Instagrammable culture that wants you to constantly present your best self and there's nothing the world needs now more than spirit-led believers willing to walk in an authentic Christian life that says, no, you know what? I don't have it all together. But I'm being changed. And people can't see the transformation in your life if everything's walled off. And they think you're perfect. And you, and you seem to think you're perfect. We got to get real. We got to get honest. But we also got to continually turn to Jesus. Listen, you came to faith in Christ. You repented of your sin. You put your faith in Jesus. And that was a one-time, right? You, a one, salvation is a one-time thing. But the rest of your Christian life is a posture of repentance from sin and faith in Jesus. Turning from sin is a lifestyle for the believer. Faith in Jesus is a lifestyle for the believer. And so we have to continually be saying no to sin and turning from sin and trusting Jesus to help us walk in victory over sin. And thirdly, we've got to continually yield to the Holy Spirit. Jesus called him the helper. He said the helper's coming. And then he sent his spirit. And the Holy Spirit is in your life to help you in a myriad of ways. But one of those is to live an obedient Christian life. Paul says in Galatians 5.16... I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. We have to yield control of our lives to the Holy Spirit and submit and surrender to His authority, to His control. It's that Christian life is not meant to be lived in your power, but His. So here's the question this morning. One, as we close this series, are you free from sin? In the sense, have you, have you turned from your sin, put your faith in Jesus, and have you seen a break and a transformation take place? And man, you, you're walking with Jesus now, and you know and you love Jesus, and you've been, you've been born again, as the Bible says. You, you, you've rested in Christ. That's the first question. And if, if that's not you, if you've never turned from your sin and put your faith in Christ, who died in your place and rose again, that's always our invitation here. We invite you, come, trust Jesus. You don't have to walk an aisle to do that or jump through a bunch of hoops. You can do that right where you're at. Turn from your sin and invite Christ to be your boss, to be your savior. Rest in what he's done for you. Stop trying to save yourself and rest in Christ to save you. But as a believer this morning, is there something in your life that you need to get real about? A struggle that you need to own? There might be some of us this morning that, man, the struggle's to a point that we need to get real honest with somebody, our spouse, a friend, somebody and say man this is whipping me and I need help is there something you need to turn from and trust Jesus with are you living your life seeking to yield it to the spirit or is your life being given over to that other that flesh those are questions that only you can answer and it's our job here to simply provide a safe space for you to wrestle with it in your journey towards Jesus Let's pray.